Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening. Well, good evening. Everyone's awake now. Why don't we pray as we look at God's word together? Father, we thank you that when we become Christians, we enter into a new family. We receive new brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray tonight that you would help us to understand more of what it means to live in that family what it means to serve one another, and what it means to follow in the footsteps of the one who first served us. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. Selfies have been in the news a lot recently. I don't know if you know what a selfie is. Um, some of you do, maybe some of you don't. Selfies are um, pictures that you take of yourself um, using your own arm or, or you know, having a camera in your own um, hand. Uh, there's an example of a selfie um, behind you. It's not very clear, but if you've been at Sega recently, you'll see this up on the screen a, f- uh, a few times. Uh, myself and my lovely wife, Lorna. That's a selfie. Um, now, it's not just us who've been um, doing selfies. Um, quite famously, um, another famous person, Barack Obama, was caught taking a selfie of himself, um, and his wife wasn't too impressed over there in the corner. A little bit awkward. Um, and then a few weeks ago, after the Oscars, um, loads of celebrities were, were crowded around a camera, and apparently this, this selfie was, has been the most uh, retweeted selfie um, ever. I have no idea what that means, but some of you might know what it means. But um, that, that's an example of, of a selfie, and, and selfies have become more and more popular because um, people have phones, and it's a chance to express yourself, and it's a sort of self-portrait that you broadcast to the world, and it's all very spontaneous and fun. In fact, selfies have become so... Um, popular and common that um, last week a whole new challenge was invented in the selfie world. Um, the selfie with no makeup on. Uh, such was the severity of the challenge that uh, thousands of women decided to uh, produce a sponsored selfie with, with no mascara or foundation or blusher or eyeliner or anything, no, no age at all. And they would publish these selfies online um, 
to, uh, uh, and be sponsored to do it. I don't know if you heard, but um, thousands of, of women have done this, and I gather millions of pounds have, has been raised for cancer research because of these uh, selfies with no makeup on. Tonight, we have before us in Philippians 2 a first-century equivalent of a selfie with no makeup on. Are you with me? <laughs> We've been thinking uh, as a church in the last uh, few weeks about what it means to live together as God's people. We've been looking about how we uh, conduct ourselves and live with one another. And tonight, as we look at uh, what Paul has to say to this young church at Philippi, we, we, he takes the covers off. He doesn't uh, leave anything um, undisclosed. Undis- uh, he looks at the heart of the issue with these uh, young Philippians. Uh, this church has uh, sent Paul a report of how they're doing. Um, you like a snapshot of their life, and it, it's, it's a good snapshot. Uh, Paul receives their report with joy. We're told in um, 1 verse 4 that he prays with joy because of their partnership in the gospel. Uh, the initial snapshot of this church is, is, is a good one. They are doing really well. It's a positive picture that Paul sees when he looks at this church. And yet the wise apostle sees beyond the surface, and he looks behind the initial gloss and glamour and, and, and fizz, and he sees some worrying signs beneath the surface. In chapter 2, we see what the problem is. When you strip away the headlines and the good starts and the public image, uh, what you find, if, you, if you're the Apostle Paul, well, you find in verse 2 um, that there's a lack of um, like-mindedness. There's not, they're not one in spirit or love. Verse 3, uh, he sees uh, selfish ambition and vain conceit. Uh, verse 4, I take it that uh, at the moment they are not looking to the interests of others, but rather to their own interests first. And so as, as Paul looks beyond the initial good report, and as he sees beyond the sort of the, the public image of this church, he sees actually the reality, if you like, with the makeup taken off. He sees what they look like on Monday morning first thing. And he has some strong words to say to them. And notice how Paul exposes their hearts to them. Uh, he doesn't use um, makeup remover or whatever you'd use. Uh, rather, he gives them the ultimate example of how they should live together. He holds up the example of Christ. And he says, look with me, if you will, at the attitude of Christ. And when you do that, you will find um, the true uh, model for how he wants these young Christians to live together. And as we look at this perfect model, and as we think about our own hearts tonight, we are, I guess, asked to strip away our own headlines and image management and to look at our own hearts to think what lies beneath the surface of our motivation. What I want to do tonight is just to spend some time initially thinking about this, this one great perfect example, Jesus Christ, and then to think about what that means for us and how we should copy his attitude. Uh, Philippians 2, 5 to 11 is, um, is one of the most significant and wonderful descriptions in all of Scripture of the work of the person of Jesus Christ. And many PhDs have been and will be written on uh, the depth of this wonderful passage, and I won't even go there tonight, so you'll be glad to know. Uh, there's far more to cover here than I could possibly um, mention in one evening. 
So instead, I want to just focus on three words, three short, small words uh, from this wonderful passage that gets us to the heart of it. Um, I say they are small, but they are truly profound, truly breathtaking. They're there in verse 8 of 2 Philippians. Paul writes, partway through verse 8, he humbled himself. Three little words. He humbled himself. Tonight, we're going to look at the most humble man who ever lived. And we're going to see the ultimate example of how we should live around one another. So he humbled himself. What does this mean for us tonight? First of all, he. Who is Paul talking about when he says he? Well, verse 5, he talks about Jesus Christ, that is God's king who is the savior. And then verse 6, this one is in very nature God. In other words, Paul is talking about the he who is no less than God himself. This he is the one that John writes about in his very first chapter of his gospel when he says, through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. That's pretty comprehensive. This he has made the world. He has made everything. Who has created this he? Well, no one's created him, for he has always existed, and he will always exist in the future. There has never been a time when he has not existed. People talk about, people ask, well, who is the most powerful person in the world at the moment? And people talk about possibly Barack Obama as being the most powerful with his great uh, military might behind him. Well, Barack Obama has nothing in the way of power compared to this he of Philippians 2. There never has been, nor will there ever be, a greater person on the face of this earth. All the degrees and journals and academic success and financial gain and street cred and popularity and girlfriends and boyfriends, we could never ever hope to match the glory and the majesty and the status of this he. Whatever power we think we have, he has more. Whatever intelligence we think we have, he has more. Whatever um, options we think we have, he has far more. Whatever right we think we have to glory and honor, he has far more. He. Well, what did this he do with all his power? In the news this week, we've heard reports from North Korea that uh, the new leader, Kim Jong-un, has uh, used his power to create a law that all male students have to have a haircut, which copies his particular haircut. Um, I'm not sure if that report is true or not, but um, it's obviously, if it is true, it's been um, passed around in order to glorify and promote promote the status of, of of the leader. Of course, it is a wretched use of power, if that is true. Well, what about the he of Philippians 2, verse 8? Our next word, he humbled. The one who created all things became humbled down to just a cell. He humbled himself through a birth canal. He humbled himself to a helpless baby lying in a manger who was hungry and who needed his nappies to be changed. 
4, verse 7, he was made in human likeness. This is the mystery of the incarnation. The one who is at the same time fully God became also fully human. Theologians tell us that this one person, Jesus Christ, has two natures, divine and human, and if you like, they coexist in what they call hypostatic union. I have no idea what that means, but I know one person, two natures helps. Which means that this humanity is not a mask. When we read in John 4 that this this he, this man, um, was tired at the heat of the day and and sat down next to a well, he really was tired. That wasn't just a, a, a fictional point. But it also means that in Mark 4, when we read about Jesus being faced with a tremendous storm out in the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples were terrified for their lives, and with a word he calmed the wind and the waves, and, and the disciples knelt down in terror, and they said, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They got it right, because they knew that only God, the Creator, could control the wind and the waves. And yet this he humbled. I think we should be clear that um, the language of of Philippians 2 talks about emptying himself. And um, um, that does not mean that he uh, emptied himself of his divinity. But rather he chose not to use his divine powers um, to their full extent. He allowed himself to become weak, tired, and hungry. He humbled. Of course, it gets worse than that, for we read in verse 8 that he became obedient to death, even death on a cross, which means that the one who created trees allowed himself to be hung on a piece of wood. Uh, The one who created the elements allowed his hands to be pierced with nails. He died the death of the lowest, the, the, the worst of criminals, the ones who are cursed, who die on a tree. And he did it for our sake. There never has been a greater downward step that any person has ever made in the course of history. And it would be impossible for anyone to make a bigger downward step. He humbled himself. Which means that he chose this path. He wasn't forced into it. This was an act of his free will when he stepped into the world and died on a cross. Before the beginning of time, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, knew that this was his course. And when the time was right, when the Father asked, he willingly did the Father's request. The incarnation is not a story of a father bullying the son into some horrific course of action. The son is not a helpless victim caught up in some terrible conspiracy that he had no idea about. No, the son knew what was happening and he chose the course. He humbled himself. And so here is humility in its most pure form. There is no makeup or disguise, no bluster, as we look at the picture of he humbling himself. And it's this picture which Paul holds up in front of the Philippians, and he says, here is, here is true humility. 
Here is, if you like, the definition of humility. And this is the attitude that I call you now to follow. This is the example that we are to aspire to. And if I'm honest, I've been amazed this week at how far short I fall of that attitude towards other people. I was thinking this week, just um, in the last few days, like, I got angry with my dog in the park when she didn't come back when I called. And the reason why is because I wanted respect. I wanted her to obey me, and she didn't, and that wound me up because I thought I was important. I got frustrated in the queue at Sainsbury's because someone in front of me was, was faffing around a bit and just taking a lot of time, and I was a bit rushed. And I realized that I, I just thought I was too important to wait. And I wanted to rush through. I felt defensive at one point because people have pointed out a mistake or a shortcoming. And I didn't like it because I think I'm too important to have those things pointed out to me. I could go on, but um, you'll be glad I won't. (laughs) But you get the point. And I'm sure if you spent a few moments on your own thinking back to this last week, you could think of ways in which you have put yourself forward at the expense of others. And but Paul urges the Philippians, verse 5, to have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. And so what would it mean for us as a church, as we finish this series about how we live together as God's family, what would it mean for us as a church to pursue, and I use that word carefully, to pursue this attitude of Christ as we live together and encourage one another and share life together? Well, just three or four thoughts as we move towards a close. I think this attitude would mean that we would think that no job was beneath us when it comes to serving other people. We wouldn't consider ourselves too lofty or too important to stoop down and do any job. Uh, The story is told, and as far as I know, I think it's true, about um, a certain Bible college a number of years ago that was um, struggling financially. They were short of money. And they had to um, lay off a number of staff, including um, the caretaker and the, the cleaner. And um, they asked people to volunteer to, to clean the site and keep the premises uh, in good order. And um, uh, people tried to, to pitch in. But um, after a while, they noticed that um, particular loos were, were always clean. Every morning you walk in, they'd be absolutely um, um, spick and span. And uh, the previous night, they hadn't been in that state. And, and no one knew um, how they, they, they were cleaned, how they were kept in, in good shape. Until one morning, a student arrived early, and he went in to use the facilities, and he found there on his hands and knees the, the principal of the college on his hands and knees cleaning the loo on his own before anybody else arrived. He wasn't there for the glory. He wasn't there to um, raise his profile. He was there to serve because he knew that no job was beneath him. And if the son would step into the world and serve us, then we should have that same attitude of being willing to step in and serve anybody anywhere No job is too low for us as we serve the family. Next, I think it means that if we follow Christ's attitude, we would be looking out for the needs of others before our own needs. We would have a radar switched on to those around us, and we would be asking ourselves, how can I serve, not how can I be served? It might mean that after church tonight, when we're having coffee and just chatting, we we don't hedge the people we know well and enjoy a conversation with friends, but we look for those who are new, who are just a bit lost and, and looking around. And we meet their needs by chatting to them and, and reaching out to them. It might mean that um, this coming week, when we're thinking about whether we go to our, our house group or our small group and we're tired and it's been, been a busy week, and we think, well, actually, personally, I would prefer not to go out tonight. I, I would just prefer a night in just to recover. I need that space. 
it might mean actually going, not because you want to, but because you know that you will encourage the group when you arrive, that those who come will be glad for your presence in the group. Next, I think it would mean that we'd be willing to set aside our particular agendas and preferences for the sake of others. As Paul puts it in verse uh, 2, he, he, he says that we should be like-minded as Christians. Uh, we shouldn't be uh, splintering off and doing our own thing and, and following our own hobbies at the expense of others. That we should be thinking, how can I get on board and how can I move to the center and share um, the, the life of the church and I think here at St. Andrews, we, we talk about the fact that we're, we're a broad church, that we have lots of people from different backgrounds, and we have different styles and preferences, and that's a good thing to celebrate. It's a good thing if we keep the gospel central and say, actually, those secondary things don't matter. Let's not divide it with them. That, that's a good thing. But it can become a bad thing if we are dividing because we're too proud to listen to other people, too proud to let go of our own particular points of view. So it can be a bad thing. And so we need to keep the gospel central and love one another and serve one another as we come together and rejoice in our differences. But we should seek to be like-minded, certainly, in the gospel. I think, finally, as we close, if we were to adopt the attitude of Christ, I think it would mean that we stop worrying about our reputation and our public image. We wouldn't have to win every discussion or argument. We wouldn't have to have the final word and show that we are right. It would mean that we could be open and honest about our actual weaknesses with those around us, that we can share what's really going on in our hearts because we're not so scared about what people think of us, that we're able to be secure enough to be honest with people. We wouldn't need to invest our energies in our image management, even at church. Notice the path of Jesus. He did not care about his honor. He did not care about his status. No, he humbled himself, and he committed his status into the hands of his father, and he let his father worry about that. He got busy serving. But do you notice what the father did? He did not leave his son humbled. No, he raised him to the highest place, and he's now seated in the the seat of honor and glory. And there is a shape to Christian life that the Son shows us first and foremost. There's a shape of suffering first, humility first, followed by glory and honor. Which means that we are called to put our lives into God's hands and to say, I will not worry about my image and my status. I give that over to you. I'll let you worry about that. Which means that we don't have to fight and to defend our corner and to somehow be the only one looking after ourselves. There is one in heaven who will do that for us. We are freed rather to serve. And so I finish with a quote from C.S. Lewis. He writes this. I wish I got a bit further with humility myself. If I had, I could probably tell you more about the relief, the comfort of taking off the fancy dress, getting rid of the false self with all its, look at me and aren't I a good boy? And all its posing and posturing. To get even near it, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. As we come in just a moment to share the Lord's Supper, we come as people who are not yet humble. 
We don't have to somehow become humble first. We come as those who are not humble. But remember, Christ died for us before we were humble. Let's come rejoicing that he took the initiative and stepped in and served us first and foremost. So let's come rejoicing that even though we fail, we have one who did not fail on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that when we become Christians, we receive a new family of brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that you would help us to be honest about how we can change our attitude towards others, how we can serve and care for the needs of others. May we be a church that increasingly takes on the attitude of Christ. And we pray this for your glory. Amen.